Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Oh, it's Matt Esau, the guy with the shitty basketball takes, or as my buddy Dill likes to call me, the guy who watched Moneyball once and now wants to be the basketball version of Billy Bean. Back again to bring you Chapter 3 of The Quest for the Best, cleverly titled Court Jesters. Oh yeah. Please remember that the first episode of the series, where I set the stage for our grand odyssey and reveal who's getting left out of the big dance, as well as the second episode, where I break down numbers 10 and 9 on our list, are both already up on all podcast platforms, and you should definitely check out those before you dive into this piece of work. Anyway, in this episode, we will be unpacking numbers 8 and 7 on my list of the greatest players in NBA history. Timestamps and the link to the article explaining my AOS stat will be included in the description of the episode. So without further ado, I give you the quest for the best. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Alright, for this introduction, I'm going to keep it nice and nonchalant, because I know that's exactly what he would have wanted. After all, this is the same guy who refused to leave a blowout loss against the OKC Thunder just to avoid receiving a standing ovation from the fans in what would be his final NBA game ever. The one who was once given the nickname Groundhog Day by Chris Webber because he was, quote, so boring and exciting at the same time. The man that celebrated a game-tying overtime playoff three-pointer with a side hug and a couple of high fives at the bench. Fuck, I'm doing it again. If by now you don't know who I'm talking about, here's his former teammate and current Hofstra head coach, Speedy Claxton. You know, being around Tim Duncan, you got to see greatness on a daily basis. Um, He was a hard worker. He treated everybody with dignity and respect, and he was... He was the ultimate competitor. Like, he always wanted to win uh, no matter what it was we were doing. If he was playing paintball, he wanted to win. If he was hooping, he wanted to win. Uh, so, he's just seen um, the greatness of Tim Duncan. Timothy Theodore Duncan. The quintessence of consistency. Tim Duncan was so reliable for so long, legendary sports writer Jack McCallum once referred to him as basketball's metronomic marvel. And good old Jack was right on the money. As the keystone to an impenetrable wall of defensive superiority, stretching from the Admiral's watchtower on one end to the Claws hunting grounds on the other, Tim Duncan quarterbacked the greatest defensive dynasty of the modern era. Under the seven-footer's guidance, the Spurs finished in the top three in defensive efficiency every year from 1998 to 2009, in top 10 every year of Duncan's career, except 2010-11, when they finished 11th. Now, defense is a team construct, Every coach I spoke to for this series reinforced that sentiment ad nauseum, 
and Duncan was definitely not without his fair share of great teammates. Bruce Bowen, Rosho Nesterovich, Kawhi Cyborg Leonard, and a very admiral partner in crime in David Robinson. All great defenders that all aided significantly in Duncan's crusade. But no matter how you slice it, there are no if and or buts about it. Timmy D was the key ingredient to the Spurs' suffocating defense. From watching Duncan, you learn that there are two main armaments, the big fundamental deploys, that allow him to be so effective on that end of the floor. His length and positional soundness. Standing at 7 feet tall with a pair of gangly Inspector Gadget arms, the Stoic Spurs forward could contest shots at their apex without hardly leaving his feet. It was this unflattering style and more grounded approach that allowed Duncan to be an impactful rim protector long after he was zapped of most of his athleticism. His length also acted as a second line of defense at times. During my research, I witnessed more than a few instances where Duncan would get beat off the dribble by a quicker guard or forward, but could rely on that cartoonish wingspan to help him recover. Like with Elijah Wan in his reaction time, this length gave Duncan a larger margin of error than most defenders in NBA history. This brings me to that second tool we were talking about. While Duncan could compensate for defensive miscues better than most, he often didn't need to. As by my estimation, the big fundamental was the most positionally sound defender in NBA history. The king of being in the right place at the right time, where it seemed that the dream was moving through time, it appeared that Duncan was controlling the very fabric of time itself. Longtime Spurs writer Matthew Tynan explains it best. Duncan was like the middle linebacker on defense. So patient and in control of everything, he knew exactly where all the pieces on the board were at all times. This control and awareness really helped Duncan when he was contesting shots. I'm sure you're all aware of the insane stat of Duncan having nearly as many blocks as personal fouls. Well, I think this is a testament to his incredible ability to not only properly position his body in a manner that avoids unnecessary contact, but also his penchant for being able to accurately locate the ball on his contests. That positional soundness also meant he had really good timing on his rotations. He did a good job of offering help in a promptly manner, often sliding into charges more than blocking fouls. He also did a really good job at hedging and recovering in the pick and roll. Although Duncan could only tango with faster ball handlers on the outside momentarily, as old man Riverwalk lacked Hakeem's dynamic mobility on the perimeter. Now is probably a good time to concede that I lied. I'm going to be doing that a lot in this series. There is one more tool in Duncan's defensive toolbox. It's his strength. As a strong candidate for the most awkwardly framed MVP in NBA history, well that is until Jokic won it and blew him and Larry Bird out of the water, Timmy D is actually deceptively strong. Playing in the ultimate era for barroom brawlers and bruisers, the Stone Buddha used his sturdy frame to bang with the Wallace Bros, Stoudemire, Garnett, Dirk, Weber, Yao Ming, even Shaqie Lee shared a few landscape-altering booty bumps with the Spurs' forceful guardian. When you combine this care package of skills together, length, strength, and positional soundness, you have yourself a recipe for defensive brilliance. Now turning over to offense, Duncan's game sported a robust array of scoring moves. The non-hooper was capable of getting buckets from both the inside and out, playing with both his back to the basket and facing up. Don't believe me, Rashad Phillips? Then listen to Iowa men's basketball coach Fran McCaffrey's thoughts on the big man. I think he was that good. You know, I, you know, I just remember him. I mean, if he got that jumper off the glass, it was money. He could catch and face up and rip. Uh, you know, he he would get to the free throw line. You know, he's he's a handful. 
uh, like when you're thinking about how we're going to stop this guy, if he just if he walked into the gym every night and said, "Okay, I'm getting 30," all right, that was going to be a problem for the other team because you know, he, he he could do that if he wanted to. Whether it be via hook shot on the low block, a leaning floater coming down the lane, or his trademark patented bank shot from the left elbow, Duncan had a lot of ways he could hurt you, and he did just that. Duncan banged and battled with every dinosaur of the late 90s and early to mid-2000s. In fact, his scoring game was so potent and polished that he was the Spurs' best offensive player on three of their five championship teams. However, Duncan was still far from an elite scorer. Despite possessing good strength and even some quickness in his younger years, Duncan was never overwhelming in either one of those avenues, and as a result, he struggled to consistently get easy looks from the floor which meant his efficiency numbers were never really better than slightly above league average. He also wasn't a really good mid-range shooter, but he was able to hit just enough from out there, around 41% for his career, to keep teams honest. Still, Duncan was able to generate easy shots by getting the line where he was an absolute workhorse, averaging 10 attempts per 100 possessions for his career. This is just speculation on my part, but I feel like seeing Duncan's wiry build flounder around the basketball court definitely made some of his flops look more like fouls to the naked eye. Hey, whatever works, right? For me, what pushes Duncan ahead of Lone Star legends like Dirk and Hakeem is his passing. Of all the big men I studied for the series, he ranks second in his passing ability, only behind passing wizard Kevin Garnett. Rob Lanier seems to agree with my analysis here, as the Georgia State head coach told me that while the Spurs system seems conducive to great passing, Duncan's unique brilliance as a passer for his size is why the system worked so well. And I'd say that out of all the all-time big men, including Garnett, Duncan does the best job of reading and reacting to double teams. His reads aren't mechanical or rushed. He's a patient and natural decision maker. He can make that simple kick out to the perimeter, but he can also hit that advanced read to the cutter under the rim, or those ultra-advanced cross-court passes to shooters on the weak side of the court. Hubie Brown summarized it best during the Spurs finals matchup against the Pistons. Duncan knows how to accept the double team. Duncan's still not a great passer by any means. He still misses or is late on quite a few of those advanced reads. His accuracy can also be a little off at times, but overall he hits more of those passes than he misses. He's also a really good passer in transition, whether that be throwing outlets to surging guards or taking matters into his own hands by putting the ball on the floor and initiating the fast break on his own. One part of Duncan's package evaluator seriously underrated is his off-ball game. His catch-and-shoot game may be eh, but he provides so much more value in other areas. For starters, watch any Spurs game from 1997 to 2016. Duncan is always in a constant state of motion. And the key here is he isn't just moving around to hit his steps for the day. He's moving with intent. If he's not on the low block trying to seal off his man to open up an easy finishing opportunity, he's coming up to the perimeter setting screens trying to help his guards get downhill penetration and create advantageous situations for the offense. That's another thing I noticed. Duncan's Rick Mahorn level screen setting ability made him the perfect player to pair with known speed demons like Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili. Now time to go all Billy Bean on one Timmy D. Add that up and you get... Want me to speak? We're not As I mentioned before, the Duncan-led Spurs sported the most ironclad defense of the modern era, 
and they did it without Duncan's most trusted lieutenant. In 2003-2004, the year after David Robinson's retirement, the Spurs' defense was 9 points below the league average in efficiency. That's the best mark since 1964, the year my father was born. Duncan never winning a Defensive Player of the Year is more about his aesthetics than his shortcomings and ability. He didn't sport a signature finger wave or emphatically send shots back to Neverland Ranch. He was just regular old Duncan. We also have the luxury of having some access to Raptor numbers on number 21, and despite only having the last couple of years of his career, he still led the league in defensive Raptor and defensive box plus minus in his final season in the NBA, when he was almost 40 years old. When you factor that kind of longevity in with the elite defenses he carried in his prime, that's some pretty solid circumstantial evidence that allows us to conclude that there aren't five better defenders in NBA history than Tim Duncan. I'm also going to point out that his defensive rebounding numbers are the best of all the post-merger big men other than Moses. And while his offensive rebounding numbers are cut below the all-timers, he still provided massive value there by becoming an expert in the art of putting back his own misses. Scoring-wise, Duncan's playoff numbers suggest he's a pretty resilient scorer in his own right. His volume stays right around the same, and although he doesn't improve in efficiency like Elijah Wan, he doesn't fall off all that much either. One thing I really love about Duncan is how he was able to scale his offensive production to meet the team's needs. Early in his career, he's able to carry a defensively slanted roster to consistent top 10 finishes in offensive efficiency. And then as he gets older and Parker and Leonard become better scorers, he's able to turn himself into a secondary and tertiary option on elite offensive teams. Looking at his awards and accomplishments, Duncan's trophy collection would suggest that he isn't nearly as underrated as we thought he was. A five-time NBA champion, three-time finals MVP, although that should be at least four and I will die on that hill, two-time MVP, two-time runner-up, a 15 All-NBA, 15 All-Defense, and 15-time All-Star recipient, and a one-time free throws made leader. All this adds up to him scoring an incredible 154.5 on my AOS stat, which is good for fifth all-time. Longevity definitely helps him here, as Tim Duncan displayed the longest stretch of sustained excellence of any all-time great in NBA history. Even Kareem and Karl Malone lost a little luster in their 20th season in the league. Duncan, on the other hand, left the game still an all-defensive caliber player. Not too shabby for a guy who's not even a hooper. Am I going to overdo this Twitter reference? You know it! Alright now, when making the anecdotal argument for Tim Duncan... I tend to talk about two things. One, family. Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. And two, football. Enough talk. Let's play football! So, a little background here. My godfather and his brothers are the ultimate TB12 guys in the history of everything. Loved him since he was at Michigan, fanatically cheered him on during his six Super Bowl runs, cried when Eli Manning alphaed him not once but twice on the greatest stage in sports, the whole shebang. Anyway, every time my family gets together, the Brady-Belichick debate rears its ugly head. When it does, my uncle and father always err to the side of Belichick, mostly in bad faith because they're still pissed off that they took the Pats minus 12 against the Giants in Super Bowl 42. I also usually side with them as well, mostly because I'm a prick who finds cheap comedic value in stirring the pot at the dinner table. However, 
even after years of relentlessly trying to control them otherwise. My godfather and his brothers have never wavered from their resolve. To them, it's always been more Brady than Belichick. The Patriot way exists because of Brady's excellence. And to their credit, the TB12 impact was further solidified this past season as he left the Pats, they stunk, and he led his new team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, to a Lombardi trophy. Still couldn't beat Eli, though. I tell this story, one, as a further attempt to humanize myself and gain sympathy from the audience, but also to illustrate the legacy of basketball's greatest power forward. Just like Tom Brady and the Patriot way, Tim Duncan is the creator of Spurs culture. Greg Popovich is incredible, probably the greatest coach in NBA history, and for years, him and Timmy D made up a De Niro and Scorsese-like partnership. But even Pop will tell you, Duncan was always his ace in the hole. While, while Popovich certainly impacted Duncan's career in a very positive way, like Duncan probably wouldn't have had the same success he did uh, in the long run with someone other than, than Pop because they just connected so well. Like Pop, Duncan's a very unique type of personality. And I think Pop and him connected very early on in Duncan's career. Um, and they were kind of perfect for one another. Um, so while Pop had a huge influence on Duncan's life, and Duncan has said as much a million times how important Pop is to him in his life, not just from a, a basketball perspective, but from a personal perspective. Um, but if you're talking about basketball, I mean, that's Duncan, while well, Pop deserves credit, Duncan deserves the majority of it. It was, it was, it was his just unbelievable ability to win games uh, that, that is going to be the biggest, you know, going to have the biggest impact in the end. That was Matthew Tynan, a man who has spent years covering the Spurs and shared multiple conversations with the future Hall of Fame head coach. Now here's Duke assistant coach Chris Carrawell, a man who famously had a crucial block against Duncan in a late season matchup versus Wake Forest in 97. This how I knew good, how good Duncan was, right? At the end of the day, pop is pop, but Tim Duncan, shit. It's always, it's all, I mean, he's a once in a lifetime player. So think about this, right? He came into the league, they won it in 99 and 2003. After that, though, you know, 05, 07, and then come back and win again in 2014. Those teams were really good, you know what I'm saying? But he was in a mix, you know what I'm saying? It was no David Robinson. He's been the main guy. He was the main guy. You know, six finals, five chips. That's Duncan. And I think he's underrated, to be honest with you, because he didn't have the flash or the pizzazz, you know, small media market. But he was a killer, man. This dude was one of the, he's, uh, he's, he was crazy. This dude was crazy. It, it's Duncan, man. People, it was Duncan. And in the Western Conference, too, now. So think about this. He's doing all this stuff in the West. And at the West at the time, they had the best bigs in the league. When it was a, a big man dominated game. The big man dominated game in the West. Duncan was putting it down. So he's, he's, he's really underrated. Um, you know. He's underrated. I, I love Popovich, and Popovich is one of the best of all time. But let's be clear. It's still fucking Duncan. Excuse my language. They both echo what Pop has long shared with everyone. 
The main reason for 18 50-win seasons and 18 top 10 defensive finishes is not David Robinson and Sean Elliott. The main reason for nine conference finals appearances, six NBA finals appearances, and five world championships isn't Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker. The main reason that the San Antonio Spurs are unanimously recognized as the template for team building in American team sports is not Greg Popovich. It's boring old Timmy D. Defensive stalwart, low post warrior, lone star icon, and most importantly, the eighth greatest player in NBA history. So now for the why hire part. I hinted at it with his passing, but the reason Duncan finds himself over Wilt and Akeem in our quest for the greatest of all time is because of his superior decision-making abilities. From talking to a lot of coaches at the college level, one thing that has become abundantly clear to me is how valuable quick-time decision-making is to a team construct. Duncan's aptness in this area allowed him to evolve alongside a rapidly changing game. When Duncan arrived, he found himself in a landscape revolving around isolation scoring and making plays from the low block. By the time Duncan left, the game had transformed into a faster, free-flowing, more perimeter-oriented style of play. Duncan thrived in both ecosystems. He was a part of high-level teams in both eras. His adaptability, coupled with his unmatched longevity, raises him at just a notch above the aforementioned Goliaths. Now, one thing that really stood out to me while I was doing my research for the series was realizing just how close Duncan and Garnett were historically. As the two greatest power forwards in NBA history, making the decision of who to include in this list was the ultimate case study in splitting hairs. And it came down to the essential question of this entire series. How did you dominate your era? Garnett was the superior passer and shooter, and his defensive versatility is nearly unprecedented within NBA history. But at the end of the day, Duncan's combination of strength, isolation scoring, and rim protection was more beneficial to their era and gives him the slight edge as the greatest power forward in NBA history. Now, Duncan is only eighth in our countdown of the greatest players in NBA history because while his longevity ranks among the best of the best, his peak leaves a little to be desired. At his most dominant, Duncan's prime stretch in the early 2000s gives him one of the 10 or 12 best peaks in NBA history, depending on how you slice it. But there's never a definitive two or three year run that I can point to and say, hey, Duncan is 100% the best player in the world right there. And in an exercise like this one, that means something. Oh well. Knowing Timmy D, he probably doesn't give a shit anyways. I hear he likes kickboxing now. Hey, Quest listeners. We wanted to take a quick break from our journey to give a shout out to one of the sponsors of this limited series, Retroshade. At its core, the quest for the best is 10 stories of extraordinary individuals overcoming great obstacles and defying all odds. That makes Retroshaded, a brand built on resiliency and the determination to never give up, the perfect partner for this series. During a rough stretch in his life, the company's CEO and founder, Trevor Macklem, was looking for his purpose. And at the time, the only thing that brought him joy was snowboarding with his brothers. He began obsessively researching the history of the sport to the point that he even started wearing retro-style sunglasses similar to the ones that one of the sport's pioneers, Craig Kelly, wore as he was snowboarding down the slopes all over the world. And after receiving a lot of attention while wearing them at a local resort, Trevor realized that there was an opportunity for him to find his purpose. But more importantly, he realized 
he had a chance to spread to others the sense of inspiration those sunglasses gave him. And just like that, Retroshaded was born. Fast forward to today, and Retroshaded now serves as a symbol of hope and determination for thousands of people all across the country. With over 30 different styles and colors to choose from, Retroshaded has something for everyone. Visit their website, Retroshaded.com today, and pick out a premium pair of sunglasses that are just right for you, without breaking the bank. Listeners of this series get an additional 20% discount by using the code QUEST20 checkout. Visit Retroshaded.com and join the community of hope and inspiration today. Now back to our limited series. All right. We have returned now to reveal number seven on our countdown of the greatest players in NBA history. But first, I thought we'd take a brief break in the action for me to share a short poem I've been working on. The tentative title for it is The Number Seven. Here's how it goes. Why does the number seven make us tick? Guaranteed to lose your money quick. If asked what number I would pick, I'd say number 33 does the trick. I apologize if you dislike this stick, but number seven is the fellow from French Lick. God damn it, I am such a loser. Cue the clip from Old Dominion head coach Jeff Jones. He didn't, like in practice, he didn't say a whole lot. I mean, Rick, Rick literally ran practices. You know, obviously he he did what 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 Bird told him, you know, but but when Larry Bird talked, and, and so on on that team, you had guys like Chris Mullen, Jalen Rose, Reggie Miller, Rick Schmitz, uh, both Davises, Dale Davis and whoever the other Davis was. I mean, they were really, really good. You know, they ended up losing, I think, in the Eastern Finals to Jordan State, I Twice, think. Yeah. Yeah. So, but those were veterans. You know, those, those weren't a bunch of rookies or whatever. When Larry Bird talked, it was like noticeable right off the bat that that those guys were quiet and he didn't raise his voice and they were in, in tune. And, and to me, that was respect. Larry Bird. An awkward physical blend of Troy Bolton and the tennis instructor that blasts Mike's wife in GTA. Bird's Boy Scout short shorts and Billy Ray Cyrus mullet, which in hindsight was ahead of its time, made him the punchline of every Twitter joke claiming that the talent pool of the 80s consisted of part-time custodians and electricians. They are all sorely missing the mark. While quite the transman in his own right, Larry Legend was on an entirely different level as a basketball player. As Ben Taylor said in his Greatest Peak series, he was something entirely unique that the basketball world had never seen before and hasn't seen since. I used poetry to introduce Bird because watching him play basketball was a Shakespearean experience. As the absolute Zen master of knowing how to balance his scoring with his playmaking, the Celtic legend was a case study in understanding what it meant to feel the game of basketball. That's what people miss when they call Bird an athletic. On the contrary, it's actually the opposite. He's an athletic freak just not in the way that we traditionally associate the taxonomy with. Bird's athleticism comes from his GOAT-level court mapping and mental processing abilities. Bird saw the floor in a way that few players in NBA history ever have. The superior vision was integral to an offensive alchemy that would have warranted charges of witchcraft had the year been 1692. His passing vocabulary was expansive and diverse, 
sporting a Webster's Dictionary of different delivery speeds and release angles. He could hit crisp bounce passes on backdoor cuts, toss behind-the-back passes to his streaking trailers, hurl blink-and-you-might-miss-em fastballs, and feather in touch passes to penetrators under the rim. He could make great plays working from both on and off the ball. Bird operated well at the top of the key in the pick and roll, making good reads as both the ball handler and even occasionally as the roll man making passes on the short roll. He also regularly pinpointed open Celtics when hanging out in the mid and high post, either by whipping the ball over to surging cutters or using his size to see over the top of defenders and identify the weak point in the defensive rotations when they sent help. With all this in mind, like Brian, Bird's primary domicile on the court was at the elbow. It was there the Golden Mane's artistic vision fully manifested and he penned some of his greatest passing sonnets. The Celtics could have him receive the ball coming off screens, run side pick and roll actions with him, or just let him function as the connective tissue in whatever passing thread the green and white may have been weaving during the 1980s. The magnificent mullet was also an assassin in transition. A great defensive rebounder for his position, Bird would careen balls from off the rim and immediately push the pace on the other end. Like his versatility in the half court, Bird could execute plays in transition as the initiator, the finisher, or even as a middleman connector between the two. This chimeric blend of size, passing versatility, and all-time level spatial awareness firmly inserts Bird in the holy triumvirate of passers among the all-time greats I studied, along with legendary deliverers of the ball, Magic Johnson and LeBron James. Now, while I will refrain from doing the near-impossible task of telling you who's the best passer of the three, I will offer this important distinction in their passing philosophies. As Coach Jeff Jones explained to me, where Magic and LeBron used their strength and size to create openings in the defense, Bird used his awareness and clairvoyance to predict future passing windows. This difference will matter a little more to us later on. Larry Legend's scoring repertoire consisted of every pickup basketball trick in the book. Had he not turned to coaching after retiring, Bird could have run a clinic for middle-aged men on how to dominate Wednesday night runs at your local LA fitness. He'd hit you with the classic combo of slow-moving pump fakes, head fakes, hesitations, and stepbacks. He utilized screens to help him get clean looks off the catch and shoot, and when he couldn't get separation off-ball organically, He'd used that push-off move that Reggie Miller later immortalized when he used it on MJ in 93. Sometimes, he'd even grace us with that ultra-light Dirk before Dirk one-legged fadeaway. And he even mastered the universal orgasm-triggering move for all high school coaches. That immediate cut to the rim following a pass to your teammate, aka the optimal time to get a step on your man as they've loosened up after being completely engaged in man defense. On top of all this, Bird was the offensive equivalent of Duncan with his propensity for being at the right place at the right time. Ben, things have really fallen apart without Oliver, haven't they? It's a good thing I'm back then. Was he waiting for an entrance line? Nope. He's just that cool. The greatest calling card of Bird's scoring was, of course, his shooting. As a three-time three-point contest winner and the Amelia Earhart of the 50-40-90 club, it's safe to say Larry Bird was the greatest shooter of his generation. Bird possessed seemingly limitless range in comparison to the players from his era. The unique windup in his shot motion made it possible for Bird, like he did with his passing, to release the ball from many different angles and areas on the court. This, coupled with good balance and strong footwork in his shooting mechanics, made him deadly in catch and shoot situations. 
Regardless of Bird's balance and position on the floor, upon receiving the entry pass, he could quickly and comfortably regain his footing and launch a clean look at the rim. Although, that idiosyncratic two-motion windup of his also comes with some drawbacks. Unlike someone like a Steph Curry, whose lightning-quick release allows him to get his shot off whenever and wherever he pleases, Bird needs some sort of separation to accurately launch his shot attempts. The issue with that is Bird doesn't really have his own modus operandi for doing so. No crazy first step, no devastating handles, no brute strength to bully his way into his spots. He's the guy using the cheap tricks at the rack, remember? This means that Bird leaves a lot on the table as a pull-up and isolation scorer, which hurts his offensive value in the playoffs where the game slows down and those easy looks coming off screens become increasingly scarce. Still, Bird's GOAT-level decision-making, off-ball shooting, and court-mapping abilities makes for one of the most additive offensive skill sets a player can possess, which makes him a harmonious fit in almost any offense ever constructed in NBA history and a strong contender for the title as most scalable offensive player in the history of the sport. On defense, Bird's frame also leads to him being miscast as an incapable, slow-footed liability on the end of the floor. Now, there definitely is a little truth to those misconceptions. Bird was never a really good point-of-attack defender, and he struggled challenging shots vertically despite measuring in at about 6 foot 9 inches. But even with those deficiencies, he still made enough of an impact on that end of the court to be a positive defender his entire career, and at his very best an all-league caliber defensive player. Let's start with that man defense. Due to the nature of his role on defense as more of a roaming free safety than a shutdown specialist, Bird was rarely ever challenged in traditional one-on-one situations. And honestly, in the very few situations throughout the game that he was put to the test, Bird held his ground pretty well, especially in the post where he could use that good old country strength to help him avoid being overpowered by forwards. He was solid at the point of attack, even momentarily holding his own with guys like MJ and Isaiah. But even with that success, he was definitely susceptible to speed and didn't really stand too much of a chance when the jet engines were at maximum velocity. Even with that vulnerability, I'd still say he was mobile enough out there to be considered a better perimeter defender than his 80s adversary, Magic Johnson. What earned Bird his three all-defensive teams was his contributions as a help defender. That cognition we talked about during the offensive portion of our player breakdown was on full display at the defensive side of the ball. Whether it was providing support at the nail or wing, reading a ball handler's eyes in order to disrupt passing lanes, or just making timely and intelligent rotations when the play breaks down. Bird was just flat out awesome playing within a team construct on defense. And prior to 1988, when that decrepit back finally gave out on him, Bird was actually really springy and agile when moving on defense. I recall going back and watching Game 6 of the 1986 Finals, the game Bob Ryan told me was the best Bird ever played, and counting six instances in just the first quarter where Bird caused some sort of defensive disruption by just running amok in the passing lanes. Even with Bird's incredible reads and positional savvy, he was still far from an elite defender, and it's important to note that he benefited greatly from sharing a front court with Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. The Chief was a very sturdy rim protector and allowed the Celtics to compensate defensively for Bird's inability to provide a reasonable level of resistance to shots at the rim. Meanwhile, as coach Jeff Jones pointed out to me, 
Mikhail's alien versatility as a defender on the perimeter for his era allowed Bird to avoid expending energy chasing around quicker guards and forwards on the outside. This was especially beneficial to him after back injuries completely zapped him of all that agility we talked about. Overall, Bird's scalability on offense and ability to operate effectively within a team construct on defense made it possible to build elite offensive and defensive teams around him. As during Bird's prime, the Celtics were able to trot out elite defensive teams, number one in the league in 1985-86, and elite offensive teams, number one in the league in 1987-88. That number one ranked offense in 87 and 88 posted a plus 7.3 relative offensive rating, which is just as high as any offensive rating put up by the Lakers during the Showtime era. Now, when looking at one number defensive metrics we have access to, like defensive win shares and defensive box plus minus, they also really like Bird as they paint him as anywhere from a solid positive defender to an all-league caliber defender for his entire career. This is probably a bit slanted in his favor because of all the great defenders he played with, but still points to the fact that he is definitely an above-average defender. We also touched on it earlier, but his defensive rebounding rates were awesome, bordering on center territory. A lot of this can be chalked up to the Celtics rebounding scheme, wanting Bird to be the one who grabs the rebounds in order for him to push the pace on missed shots, but I'd still say Bird was a damn good defensive rebounder for his position, which further augments his defensive value. In the playoffs, because of his shortfalls as a scorer off the dribble, Bird's efficiency and scoring volume both take a sizable hit. However, his free throw rates do see an uptick, and his playmaking numbers hold up as well, which was still enough for him to function as a strong offensive number one on championship rosters. One thing I will say in favor of his longevity, even after a series of back injuries turned him into a shell of his former self, Bird's institutional knowledge was so great that he still averaged a PER of around 20 and a box plus minus of around 5 during his final 3 seasons, which is generally considered to be all-star caliber production. Bird's accolades land him 10th all-time in my AOS stat with a score of 129.5. The lack of longevity leads to him being kind of underrated by the stat, at least in comparison to his ranking on this list. But still, as a 3-time champ, 2-time finals MVP, one of only 3 players in league history to have won 3 straight regular season MVPs, a four-time MVP runner-up, 10-time All-NBA selection, three-time All-Defensive Team selection, all three of which were definitely deserved, by the way, not just a result of lazy voting, a 12-time All-Star, two-time three-pointers made leader, and two-time PER leader, Bird's 13-year career is on par with almost any in NBA history. Now, there are two major anecdotal arguments for why Larry Legend is deserving of the seventh slot in our countdown of the GOATs. Argument number one, the reason Larry Bird matters is like why climate change matters. Without the Earth, we wouldn't exist. And without Bird and Magic, the NBA probably doesn't either. That's right, we're going there. I made this about existentialism. Right, think about everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis. You wake up, you get ready for work, you hit the drive through breakfast place on your way there, you clock in, you clock out, you drive home, you maybe hit the gym on your way back, you get home, you eat dinner, you go to bed. In order to be able to do all of those things and everything else in between, 
it's safe to assume you need a platform to do them on. That platform would preferably be the Earth that most of us inhibit. Now, with this in mind, I feel like it would be equally safe to assume that one would have a difficult time carrying out said functions if the Earth were not to exist. Moving over to basketball, think about the type of basketball content you consume on a daily basis. You watch games, scout players, read articles on The Athletic or SB Nation, build mock drafts, watch cringy ESPN talk shows, tweet weird shit from off your burner account. Just an absolute bounty of content at your fingertips, right? And I'd argue, probably not with the same degree of certainty as my prior argument, but still with pretty strong certainty, that without Bird and Magic's ultimate courtship of rivals in the 80s, the NBA as we know it today literally ceases to exist. Think about it. Coming into the 1980s, the NBA was pretty down bad to say the least. Ratings were cratering, finals games were being aired on tape delay, the league's best player was a reserve gentle giant, and there was more coke being snorted than in season two of Succession. The league desperately needed saving, and at the turn of the decade, Magic and Bird were there to do just that. Every sport needs an iconic rivalry. Ali had Frazier, Nadal had Federer, Sosa had Maguire, Brady had Manning, Eli that is. It's innate to our nature to see our peers as barometers for our own success. Just think of it like running the 100 meter dash. Your time will always be faster when you're racing against someone else. And no rivalry forced each of its participants to run faster than that of birds and magics. Okay, maybe Justin Gatlin and Usain Bolts did, but you get the point. Without Bird and Magic pushing each other to be the best they can be, the NBA as we know it today may not even exist. Hell, the quest for the best might not even exist. And I'm sure there is some logician out there that says otherwise, but if you ask me, being one half of the reason a list exists is a pretty strong case for being included on said list. Now for my second argument. Not Kobe Bryant, not LeBron James, not Michael Jordan, not even Big Shot Bob. Larry Joe Bird is the clutchest player in NBA history. We talked earlier about Bryant having his fair share of iconic moments. Well, Bird's got a pretty formidable greatest hits list of his own. I named them off emphatically in some sort of rhythmical sequence like I did with Kobe, but let's face it. Color commentating in the 80s didn't hit the same way as, say, an iconic Mike Breen bang would. These moments are all great and fun to think about, but they undersell the unique value Bird has in high leverage situations. So many times when we think about all-time great clutch performers, we are talking about the guys who can hit those highly contested isolation jumpers. Guys like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. And there's value in that, and it's really fucking exhilarating to watch those guys take and make tough shots. But no matter how you slice it, if you do the math, even the best isolation scorers are always going to be less efficient than the regular sets your offense runs on a points per possession basis. That's the beauty of Bird. He plays the game the exact same way regardless of the time and situation. He's like Clint Eastwood staring down the armed gangsters at the end of Gran Torino. He's so calm, 
cool, and unfazed by high-pressure moments that caused so many other players to tense up. This was never more apparent to me than watching the 1987 Game 7 Eastern Conference Finals against the Detroit Pistons, where Bird famously played all 48 minutes despite there being no air conditioning in the building. Bird never seemed rushed or nervous during a possession in those final few moments. He worked at his speed, read all of his progressions, and made decisions the way he wanted to, the way he always did. Like I said, this isn't to denigrate the value of the late game closer. Everyone I talked to reiterated the importance of having that bucket getter who can break the defense when your offensive sets become stagnant. But wouldn't it just be nicer if you could avoid that dilemma entirely? That's what you get with Larry Bird. The guy who, when facing certain death, opts to casually reach in his coat pocket to get a lighter for his smoke rather than panicking and grabbing his gun. The guy who is the seventh greatest player in NBA history. Okay, so how did Bird manage to beat out Bryant, Elijah Wan, Timmy D, and all of the other deserving candidates on this list? Well, going back to the wisdom that the very intelligent Dean Oliver imparted on me, when you're trying to compare players from different eras, the best thing you can do is look at their production through the lens of that five to seven year window. So let's meet him in the middle and look at six years of Bird. Just for shits and giggles. During his best six-year stretch from 1982 to 88, Bird averages nearly 27 points, 10 rebounds, and 7 assists a game. You want to hear his MVP finishes during that six-year span? Second, first, 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 third, second. Also from that time, his teams averaged nearly 61 wins a season, went to four NBA Finals, and hung up two new banners in the Boston Garden. You'd have a hard time finding too many six-year runs better than that. And if you ask me, there's maybe three or four better six-year runs of production in NBA history than that of Larry Legend. Maybe. I'll also say this. I hinted at it a bit earlier, but among the all-time greats I studied, I think it's Steph and Bird who are the two whose package of skills would allow them to be a good fit on pretty much any roster in NBA history. But I will give the slight nod to Bird in that area because I think his size and defensive IQ makes him a more valuable team defender, which makes it easier to fill out a roster around him. So why does a guy with one of the five best peaks in NBA history top out as only number seven on our countdown? Well, one thing I talked about with a lot of people from my interviews are the issues concerning Bird's longevity. And most people advise that I should take into account the lack of resources that were available to the players of Bird's time, both medically and nutritionally. I agree with those people to an extent, but when you really look at it, a lot of the shit that Bird got in trouble with was more him being an idiot than any shortage in our understanding of medicine. For instance, in May of 1985, Bird and his teammate Quinn Buckner got into a bar fight at some hole in the wall called Chelsea's that left Bird with an injured index finger and may have cost him the 1985 finals. A little later that year, Bird hurt himself shoveling gravel to create a new driveway for his mother, which triggered a string of back injuries that ended up ultimately ending his career. Then, in the following season, he injures his hand again playing softball this time. Fucking softball, man. Like, you do not need a doctor or a nutrition coach to tell you you shouldn't get into a bar fight or play pickup softball during basketball season. I'm sorry, but I don't care what era we are in. Bird's always going to be the stubborn bastard 
who does weird shit like that to get himself hurt and hurt his longevity. But the main X's and O's reason that Bird only tops out at seven in our quest for the best is because of the limited ceiling of his potential as an offensive number one because of his inability to create consistent separation off the dribble. One thing that really resonated with me from my conversation with Stanford head coach Jared Haas is the importance of being able to get to your spots as a scorer. Haas, who famously co-captained the Jayhawks team that featured isolation guru Paul Pierce, explained to me that this can be done in a variety of ways. You can use speed, strength, smooth changes in direction, a quick delivery. Whatever the case may be, Bird didn't really have any of those things at his disposal, and it shows when you look at his shooting efficiency. While reaching plus seven relative true shooting a couple of seasons in his prime, Bird's career relative true shooting of just under plus three puts him closer to Tim Duncan level efficiency than one of the three greatest all-time offensive creators in NBA history. And that's all I'm saying here. Bird is still a damn good primary creator, just not as good as the three that occupy half of the next six spots. And speaking of three out of six, we are officially halfway through our six-part journey through NBA history. I know I've ruffled some feathers so far. I'm still answering emails from angry listeners about the whole Will Chamberlain thing. But I appreciate those of you who have made the voyage with me up to this point. And I hope you'll consider joining me next week for Chapter 4, where we unpack number 6 and 5 on our countdown. But until then, this concludes another episode of The Quest for the Best. <laughs>